We are talking tonight about a subject uh, which I think is a little neglected. Uh, certainly in general society, it's not only neglected, it's utterly and completely ignored, trampled underfoot, stomped, uh, slashed and burnt. Uh, and uh, even in the Frum world, this is a subject which is really, uh, unfortunately, uh, something that is swept under the rug, which is the complete, utter and total lack of Derek Heretz. Uh, and what that means, what Derek Heretz means, I don't want to, exp- to define it too strictly at the outset because that is really what the class is about to a certain degree. But Derek Heretz, which literally means how to walk through the earth, walking on this planet. Derek Heretz, the path through this planet. What exactly is meant by that? Usually in Jewish tradition, that is understood as the, uh, as, as, as basic human decency. Basic human decency. A uh, few examples of this. The, uh, or a few exa- counter-examples. Nowadays, uh, although the truth is probably every generation bemoans how it is at this point, uh, but uh, I think there's been a, an incredible, incredible lack of Derek Heretz, uh in many ways. First of all, people who are unfortunate enough to drive in the New York, New Jersey area, uh, will be acquainted with the fact that uh, other people on the road don't care if you live or die. In fact, would probably prefer if you died, because uh, there'd be less cars on the road. Uh, they will do anything rather than let you merge. Uh, God forbid that you should actually merge into the traffic. Instead of 15,000 cars in front of them, there are now 15,001 cars in front of them. And who knows if this might delay them 0.95 seconds to get to their insignificant life. Right? So, uh, people will, uh, I mean, so when you drive along, you know, uh, you might even politely toot someone. I remember I was driving in Secaucus, uh, home of the outlet malls. Um, I was not willingly there. I was forced to go for marital reasons. And um, so I was at this, uh, I was at a uh, intersection. There was a woman in a car in front of me. There was no way to go around. She was putting on makeup, which I did not begrudge her. I mean, men shave in the car. Uh, I saw one guy showering in the Lincoln Tunnel. But I mean, um, uh, it was a convertible. It was raining. Anyway, so, um, but she's sitting there and um, the light turned green and uh, she didn't move. She obviously didn't see the light turn green because she was looking at her, you know, whatever. So I just did a, a light toot the horn. I mean, not, not, the, not one of these New York, like that type of thing. Just like, that's like, just, you know, I thought that was polite. It was a way of reminding her that there was other people in the world and one of them was behind her and whatever. So um, she uh, turned around and she gave me a, uh, well, how do I put this, a, a salute. Um, that not not quite appropriate, not the full hand, if you know what I mean. And um, I'm saying I couldn't I couldn't believe it. And then she did not move until the light started turning yellow. So it turned yellow, and then she slowly went across the intersection. Of course, at that point, any normal person will be following her at a millimeter behind, right? It's because I'm getting across this intersection. I don't care what happens, right? And I follow. She stops in the middle so that I'll be stuck in front of the oncoming traffic. She basically tried to kill me <laughs> because I did this. I mean, unbelievable, absolutely incredible, right? Uh, the the idea of politeness 
The idea of actually saying, oh, that, that's one example. Uh, you know, uh, another example is the fact that, uh, as Lynn Truss puts it, author of Eat, Shoots and Leaves, who wrote a book called Talk to the Hand, uh, Lynn Truss puts it, one of the great problems is, is, was that so hard to say? Meaning, things like, please and thank you. Unless you are a Walmart greeter, right, one doesn't hear that type of stuff. You know, um, off, I mean, granted in American retail establishments, they are trained to have the last word. So I used to like playing, having, having fun with people. I'd go into a store and say, okay, thank you, so have a nice day. i say, you too, have a nice day. And they're, they're like, what? Uh, have a great weekend. i say, you have a great month. <laughs> you know, they wouldn't know what to do because in their training, you're not supposed to respond more than one level of interaction because God forbid, who knows, whatever. So, uh, but, but, but people generally don't tend to say things like thank you or please. Right? They're just like, they may want to sit somewhere, they'll just point to the place. Right? Right? That type of thing. Like, like there's some caveman who cannot communicate, which granted, there are many around. But anyway, so, uh, but, uh, but simple things like that, saying thank you. Now, you know, look, she has an analysis here, a fantastic analysis, I think. What happens, let's say you open the door for someone, or you do some minor uh, gesture for someone. You help them out in some way. Um, so, you know, you, well, maybe let them merge, uh, in which case the standard would be to put up your hand as a thank you, right? I'm, I'm sure you've, you probably have not seen this much, but, uh, but it is actually customary to do that, right? So what happens when, this, when, you say th- when someone does say thank you? So when someone says thank you, not much happens really. Everything's back to neutral. In other words, you create a little bit of an imbalance, you open the door for them, you help them with something, you lift it up something, etc. So now there's a little bit of an imbalance. They now owe you, so to speak. And you feel that, right, so maybe deep down you feel you owe. They say thank you, everything's fine now. There's no, it's not a major big deal, it's not a major interaction. They've said thank you, now it's back to neutral. The imbalance, so to speak, has been resolved. They said thank you, I feel good, okay, end of story. But what if they don't say thank you? So she says that she, she goes through a series of uh, six aspects of what happens here. A, instead of being relieved, you're exasperated. Not surprised, because this is the type of stuff you expect nowadays, right? So you're not surprised, but you're exasperated. In some sense, you, you know, okay. Number two, instead of feeling vindicated in the fact that you did something nice, you feel that your kindness has been rejected. Ruf Hutner says, by the way, that's one of the reasons a kafui tovo, someone who is an ingrate, our sages look at an ingrate as, as the, one of the worst possible uh, uh, midot, one of the worst possible personality traits that a person can have. Why? Because not only, uh, first of all, all of our service to God, our, our uh, relationship with Hashem, with the Creator, is because we are grateful. He has given to us and He continues to give us existence, so we are grateful. But also, he says another reason is, you have cut the chain of kindness. Because you see, when someone does kindness and is not appreciated for that, is not thanked for that, then are they going to be less inclined or more inclined to do kindness the next time? Less. Obviously less. They're not going to want to be kind to you again, or anyone for that. It's not necessarily you, but they're not going to want to be kind in future. Because, you know, maybe they should be kind altruistically, Yes, we expect altruism, that's a wonderful thing, but most people are not altruistic, and so this person will not be inclined to do... So you've now cut 
the chain of chesed, of kindness. It's not going to continue past your lack of thank you. So that's number two. Instead of feeling vindicated, you are dismayed. Your dignity is wounded. Number three, you also feel that you don't exist. Like, what, what, I don't exist? I mean, that happens often. Right? People will talk through you. Right? Like in the dentist's chair. Right? Waiting for the Novocaine to take effect. And in one ear you hear, so where are you going the holiday weekend? And the dentist answers back through your ear to the nurse. Oh, we're probably going down to Florida. And oh, it's very, very expensive now. So, you know, I feel like I'm here. I'm here. Granted, I don't have a lower jaw, but I am actually here. Right? So, but you see this completely, people often ignore you. Uh, it's, it's the type of thing. So, when the person doesn't say thank you, right, I feel that my existence has somehow been obliterated. Okay? Number four. Instead of just having to feel, okay, coolly virtuous, which is fine, you feel a little virtuous, oh, I did a nice thing, they said thank you, that's great, now what do you feel? You feel a little bit of righteous indignation. (laughs) You know, that type of thing, righteous indignation. None of this is positive. Number five, instead of feeling safe, you're frightened. Why? Because you see, what happens is, your reasoning accelerates. If if, If this guy doesn't even acknowledge that I exist, if this guy doesn't even say thank you for something, right, he's probably some type of sociopath, right? He could murder me. Right? I mean, these people walking around, I mean, the truth of the matter is, so your mind accelerates, you get a little nervous being around someone. Well, like, what type of person is he? And, and of course, you know, you've probably seen movies in past, so who knows where your mind is going with this. Number six, you hate that person. You're now filled with hatred for that person. Because I did him a nice thing, the same reason that if you don't, if you didn't notice someone did something kind for you, let you merge, and you didn't say thank you, they'll tailgate you from here to Tallahassee. Right? That is it. You didn't say thank you, doesn't matter where they are going. They could miss a business appointment. They could miss a contract. They'll tailgate you from here to Gehinnom, right? Basically, right? So you now hate that person who's rejected your kindness. So all of this, all of this could have been easily resolved with two words. Thank you. Can you imagine that? It's unbelievable. Right? Now this, I don't think this is a gross exaggeration. These feelings, look, you may not be walking around all day. Right, I can't believe they didn't say thank you. It's not like the centre of your day. But enough of these things happen that we do tend to feel a lot of these emotions on a regular basis. And it's very, very difficult. So I think one of the first components of, of what she calls the collapse of politeness or the, the uh, ascendancy of rudeness is this idea of, was that so hard to say? Please? So hard to say please? Right? Uh, you tell, you know, you, you, you educate your children to say, please. We, talk, we say, please. But a lot of people do not say, please anymore, or thank you, or etc. Why am I the one doing this? That's another feature of modern day society. It says, why am I the one doing this? In other words, so much is foisted upon me, upon each of us. You know, I phoned today, um, I'm flying to England in a month, but I phoned the airline, and... Um, they tell you it's automated, of course, which is annoying beyond imagination, right? So you press the appropriate buttons. Then it says, please enter your flying club membership number. Of course, you enter the 12-digit number, right? And then, you know, your birth date, your mother's maiden name, what was your dog's name, etc. That type of stuff. All the security questions. What, what, where'd you go for high school? I don't remember which one I wrote because there was so many. Whatever. You know, so, so that type of stuff. Um, so, and then... 
like finally you, you're online, you're waiting for, you know, we're, we're answering other calls, right? Answering, our, please have patience, we're answering other calls now, right? Please have all your information ready, they'll tell you, so, because, so that we can serve, right, more customers. In other words, they give you a guilt trip as well. Because if you don't have all your information at hand, then you are the one who's causing someone else, right, the old lady with a heart condition, whatever, right, you're causing her to wait, right, and who knows, you could be a mass murderer just by not having any information at hand, right. So, finally, you get through to a human being, I think, I don't know. I mean, some of the people I have spoken to definitely could have failed the Turing test. Anyway, um, computer people probably know what I'm talking about. Okay, but anyway, so you finally, you finally get to this person, and she says, okay, what's your number? I said, didn't I just enter the number in the system? She said, yes. So I said, well, don't you have it on the screen? No, no, that was to another caller. I said, what was the use of my entering the number? Oh, so that we have it in the system. But you have it in the system. You don't need it. You cannot argue with these people. So why am I doing this? I'm paying them. They're working for me. I paid thousands of dollars for this stupid ticket. They're working for me, and I have to do all the work. I have to enter in this, etc. So, but here, but in terms of Derek Heretz, part of this is that the uh, people, uh, you know, feel about themselves. Why should I do it? Someone else will do it. Smokers probably are the uh, worst criminals in this area, right? How many cigarette butts are there? Let's let's. Think, I mean, think, think, first of all, let's think about environment. Right? How many people, how many cigarettes, let's say a person smokes 10 a day? Average, I don't know, 10, probably more than that, 10 a day. Where do they put the cigarette? They throw them out on the street. What happens to the cigarette butts on the street? Doesn't get disintegrated. No, they don't disintegrate. They don't spontaneously combust, right? They, They go through the sewers, they end up in the ocean, right? And they are a poison. Right, which are destroying the ecosystem. They don't care about this. To tell, you, you start talking to a smoker about that. Here is a person who doesn't care that he's blowing poison gas in your face. Or, or as he gets on the bus, right, I just got back from Prague yesterday, did a student tour of Prague, Vienna, and, and Bratislava, whatever. But some of the stu- a lot of the students are smokers, right? A lot of people smoke in Europe like it's unbelievable. So they're getting on the bus, no smoking in the bus. So every student, this is what they do before getting on the bus. I'm on the bus, like, <laughs> it's unbelievable. So, so, uh, but you know what? Why, why should I? Someone else will clean it up. That's what street sweepers are for. Right? That's why, you know, that type of stuff. So, uh, an idea that other people will take care of it. Uh, there's another aspect of rudeness today. She calls, hey, my bubble, my rules. Uh, the belief that uh, one is in a bubble and you are not part of any particular group. In other words, you are totally isolated. That is why people on uh, public transportation, etc., or in public places will speak loudly on their cell phone about the most intimate details of their life, uh, about their medical records, uh, about their marriage, uh, about their... I mean, it, it's unbelievable the type of stuff that you should be whispering behind closed doors, right? The type of stuff you should blush to say... Right? People are yelling loud on the, on the cell phone, you know? It's unbelievable, guys. Yeah, Leah, just, just put the pillow hard over her face and she'll probably croak. No, that's what mum wants, right? She doesn't want to live like this. Yes, just press the pillow down. That type of stuff, you're on the bus all the time, right? So, so what you have is a situation, people think they are not, there's no one else around. 
they have totally ignored your existence and the existence of everyone around them. The idea that, that a person on the subway should think that we all want to hear some person with some bizarre name like Snoop Doggy Dog yelling obscenities at 700 decibels, right? I mean, when they have a little iPod, right, and they're sitting on the other end of the subway car and you can hear every single obscenity, right? It is unbelievable. Why would they... And conversations that people have as if there's... No one cares. No one cares. No one cares. I've been giving shiurim where people have actually picked up their cell phone, enough that the cell phone actually rings during the shear. They've never heard of the vibrate function, right? They never, that's, that doesn't exist on their cell phone. They have a cell phone from the 18th century. It is steam, but they have to put charcoal in every now and again, right? It doesn't have a vibrate function. But it, it rings during a shear, and then it's not bad enough that it rings during the shear. I've had people answer it. Just a second, I'm in the middle of a shear. Right? Like, no one, no, like, as if no one can, they're in this bubble, no one can hear them, no one notices they're on the phone, and they're talking, yeah, I'm just walking out of the shear now. <laughs> and there's some idiot standing there with an Australian accent. He's too easy. He's, could you, you know, I'm surprised they don't tell me, could you please keep the shear down? I'm trying to answer the phone. It's so, this is what people do. I've seen people in shul, I've seen men in shul answer the phone. It's actually interesting, I was at a, um, I once spoke in, in Dallas, te- Fort Worth, Texas, and um, uh, the air conditioning was broken where I was speaking. It was summer in Fort Worth. It was, it was quite hot. So the guy who was, spon- who was driving me around asked if I'd like to get a beer. I said, oh my God, yes, thank you. Right? So we went to this place called uh, Billy Bob's Texas Honky Tonk, whatever. It's a large, large bar in Texas, and got a beer. There's a booth, a phone booth there. It's called the Excuse Booth. Uh, you put in a quarter for your phone call, and there's another thing, you put an extra quarter, you can choose a background sound to play in the phone booth while you're on the phone. So you can choose office, airport, highway, you know, that type of thing. Unbelievable. I thought they should have something like that in shul, right, or, or whatever, you know, you can call, you got, you can have a shul sounds, coilel, whatever, hi honey, I'm gonna be a little late, right, whatever. But, but people do this. Uh, so again, this is not confined to, uh, to to any particular member of the population. This is stuff which happens in, unfortunately, in the religious world as well. This type of this type of uh, lack of a was that so hard to say? That happens in the from world. I have experienced that many many times. The lack of please, thank you, etc., etc. Often. B the idea of uh, not cleaning up after yourself. The idea that someone else is going to take care of it. I've seen that people leaving. I mean, it's in a shul, right? I, I come to a table, there's dirty, dirty tissue there. What, what happened? What, this guy couldn't... He was so weakened by his cold or his allergies, he couldn't carry the tissue to the garbage can 15 feet away. It was, it's rough, it's not easy. If you're in a weak condition, it's hard to do, right? In addition, uh, especially in the United States, this, there's an incredible emphasis on my rights, our rights... But the idea, Stephen Carter points this out, wonderful uh, uh, American legal scholar, um, in one of his books, he says, people, have confu- people think that if I have the right to do X, I am beyond censure when I do it. In other words, if I have the right to do something, no one can actually ever criticize me for that. And when you do criticize or try to tell someone, first of all, you take your life into your hands if you tell a smoker. All right, uh, look, it's really annoying me that, that, that you're breathing poisonous gases into the atmosphere that I too am breathing, right? And he'll probably put the cigarette out on your forehead, right? So, so you can't do that. But people think that their right to do something makes them totally beyond any type of criticism, any type of discussion, nothing. Uh, there's also a complete and utter lack of respect for anyone. 
on the phone today, the same airline, I won't tell you the airline, whatever, but, but on the airline, my legal name is, my name is Mordechai, but my slave name is Michael. So anyway, uh, my passport, so, so I get onto the phone and um, I say, yeah, this is, I'll just, can I give you my confirmation number? She says, sure. I get the, gives, she gets the confirmation number. She says, yeah, okay, Mike, what can I do for you? Mike? I said, excuse, excuse me, are, are you a close friend of mine? Do, do we know each other well? No. Then I said, well, as far, I mean, the truth is, no one ever has ever called me Mike, even when I was called Michael, right? And uh, certainly no one calls me Mike today, right? If you don't know me, you would, I assume you would call me Mr. Better? She said, oh, uh, okay, Mr. Mr. Mike, uh, 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 whatever. It, she couldn't handle it. She could not handle the idea that if you don't know someone, you, or, I mean, to automatically assume that I can call you. You know, the telemarketers... Some convicted felon in a prison in Louisiana where they've got a call center for selling insurance, right, presumes that he can call me by my first name and, and make a nickname of it. Not just, not even the full name. Like, he's, like isn't that a level of presumption uh, that, that is a little much? I mean, well, I wouldn't call someone, if I don't know someone, if they're not close friends of mine, I wouldn't come up to someone and say, uh, and call him by his first name or, and, and create a nickname for him. I would say Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so. I mean, I, you know, it's unbelievable. There's a certain lack, a complete lack of the idea of, of a respect. There's a respect for a person who maybe is older, respect for someone who is in a position of authority, etc. This doesn't exist, right? You don't like the referee at the Little League, right? Then, then parents will take a swing at him. It happens, happens regularly. It happens regularly. Parents are regularly arrested for taking a swing at the referee at Little League games or at other parents, right? Uh, judge, referees, the elderly, the, the lack of respect, it's, it's an incredible thing. So these are some of the features of the society in which we live, and I'm afraid they are also some of the features of the, uh, of the religious world as well. People don't have a focus on Derek Heretz. It's interesting, if you look in Chazal, look at our sages, you find quite a different picture of things. The focus on Derek Heretz is incredible. The uh, Medrash Rabbah, Vayikrates, it's quite a famous one. It talks about this following, it says the following, I won't read you the whole thing, but I'll read you part of it. Amr Rabbi Yishmael Barav Nachman. Rabbi Yishmael, in the night, said, uh, Rabbi Yishmael, son of Rabbi Nachman, said, Esrim Vashisha Doiras Kidma Derech Eretz Esa Torah. 26 generations, Derech Eretz preceded the Torah. As it says, Lishmores derech eitz hachayim, derech zu derech eretz, achakach eitz hachayim zu Torah. What does he mean here? It means the following. If you look, how many commandments, we know there are 613 mitzvahs in the Torah, 613 commandments in the Torah. There's five books of the Torah. So if you expect the commandments to be divided more or less uh, evenly amongst the five books, you would be wrong. If they were evenly divided amongst the five books, you have like a little more than 100 in each book, 120 or so in each of the books, Right? Beratius, Genesis. How many commandments are there in Genesis? How many mitzvahs are there in Beratius? Three. Three. The mitzvah of procreation. The mitzvah of bris miller, which is actually repeated later, later anyway. right? And the mitzvah of don't eat gid hanasheh, the sciatic nerve of an animal. So you've got three mitzvahs in the whole book of Beratius. Beratius represents 26 generations. Ten generations from Adam to Noah. Ten generations from Noah to Abraham, and six generations from Abraham to Moses to Moshe. So you've basically got twenty-six generations before the Torah was given. What is the whole book of Bereshit about then? 
What, so the Medrash is saying the following. The Medrash is saying the entire, those 26 generations, the reason is that the word Torah is related to the word Hora'ah, which means instructions. What is Torah? Torah is instructions for life. What are the instructions for life that we get from the Torah? The mitzvahs. But what we see here is that there are other instructions for life that actually precede the mitzvahs. What is that? Derech Eretz, how to be a decent human being. Beratius, the whole of those 26 generations of Beratius, according to the Medrash, are there to instruct us how to be a decent human being, which is the, which is the, uh, which is Kidma, Kodmala Torah, which precedes the Torah, and which is a, actually a hachana, a preparation for Torah. Very interesting. For example, our obligation to keep the Torah. Why are we obligated to keep the Torah? So we're going to be celebrating Shavuos very soon, festival of revelation, right, of the Torah. What did we say to receive the Torah? The Jews said, Naseh, Venishma. We will accept. Now, I'm going to get a little technical here, so please don't glaze over your eyes or anything like that. Right, a little technical here. Okay, before we received the Torah, what was our status, our legal status? What were we legally? B'nai Noach. We were not Jews. We were Noachides. Like, like every Gentile is a Noachide. Everyone's descended from Noah. So they're called Noachides. Noachide is obligated by what? Seven laws of the sons of Noah. What are the seven Noachide laws? Don't worship idols. Don't blaspheme. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't torture animals. Eat from live animals. And set up a justice system. Seven. Okay. So now, a bit of a problem. Under the Noahide laws, is there a law about keeping your, keeping your word? Not specific. Nope, not at all. I mean, we know that in Jewish law, in the Torah, it says, Lo yachel Don't desecrate your words. You shall do that which proceeds from your mouth. Meaning, when you make a vow or an oath, there is actually a, a say in a law, say a positive and a negative commandment that proscribe the transgression of your oath that obligate you to keep your word when you make a vow. That's, of course, in the legal system of the Torah. But keep in mind, the Jews were not yet obligated by the legal system of the Torah. We were Noachides, which means we're obligated by the Noachide legal system. Under the Noachide legal system, if I say Nasef and Ishma, does that obligate me? No. No? So what's going on? So why are we obligated to keep the Torah? What's going on? The answer is, as I heard from Robert Isaac Bernstein... The answer is very simple. The answer is that it is Derech Eretz that obligates us. Prior to the mitzvahs of Torah, there is a, every Noachite, every, every person in the world is obligated by what we call basic human decency. When I give my word on something, even if it's not part of the legal code of the Noachides, but I gave my word, I'm obligated. I accepted upon myself an obligation. I committed myself, I've got to keep it. I've got to keep it. Rav Nisim Gaon, uh, Rav Nisim Gaon in his introduction to the uh, Talmud, Rav Nisim Gaon tells us that, that the Noahide laws are only the legal or the formal legal system. But he said, and the mitzvahs, the 613 mitzvahs are the formal legal system. He says, however, anything which is a, what he calls talia be'uvnasa deliba, talia depends, be'uvnasa on the understanding deliba of the heart, he says everyone is obligated in them, whether adult or child, whether Jew or Gentile, as long as they understand it. 
As soon as you understand it, you're obligated. And everyone can understand that when I commit myself, I obligate myself, I give my word, I shake on something, I'm obligated. We are obligated in the Torah because of Derech Eretz. So Derech Eretz, Kadma Torah, does not only mean chronologically precedes the Torah, 26 generations, it also means it logically precedes the Torah, meaning that our, that our obligation to keep the Torah is logically predicated upon the fact that we have what's called Derech Eretz, decency, common human decency. Uh, in fact, the Reb um, Vital points this out. Uh, I'll get to that. So Reb Vital in a more general way, um, he was a, of course, as you know, the author of Shari Kedusha, student of the Arizal, one of the great Kabbalists of Sfat. He says the following. In, in Shari Kedusha, he says, he says the following. He says, when a person, uh, when he, he says, uh, he asks a simple question. If you look in the Torah, the Midot, Personality traits, character traits, are not part of the mitzvahs. The 613 mitzvahs don't include character development, character traits. Right? They're not in the 613 mitzvahs. He says, why are the midos, why are personality character traits not part of the 613 mitzvahs? So his answer is the following. He says, they are the primary preparation for the fulfillment of the mitzvahs. He says, Ki ein koyach benefesh asichlis lekayim ha-mitzvahs, eile be-emtsoos ha-nefesh ha-yesoidis ha-mechuberes el-aguf atzmo. There is no possibility for the person to fulfill the 613 mitzvahs just with the intellect. They have to have a personality, they have to have a character, they have to have a basis for doing the, the mitzvahs. And he says that indeed, uh, he, he points out later on, where is it? He says that in fact, a person who has nimsa, kibiyos midos harois, kibos bottom, if a person has bad character traits, he says, nimnahu milakayan hatorah mitzvahs, he is not really capable of fulfilling Torah and mitzvahs. Vigamin yakayman, and even if that person does fulfill them, Guaranteed, he says, you They will not be altruistic for the sake of heaven, and they will be the Torah Godel, they'll also be with great effort. He says, why? Very simple. If that person has, because in order to fulfill the mitzvahs for altruistic reasons, don't you have to have a little bit of a refined character? The Torah is speaking to people who already have understood a certain basic level of human decency. What, what they call in Yiddish, menschlochkeit. The, the, the person has to have an understanding of that in order to fulfill the mitzvahs. So, interesting, I want to point out, so that's one aspect of Derech Eretz, therefore, is the chronologically preceding Torah and also serving as the basis upon which the Torah is placed, both in terms of our obligation to keep the Torah as a whole and, as Reb Chaim Vital says, how could you possibly keep mitzvahs for the right reason if you don't have good middos? If a person doesn't have good personality trait, what are they always thinking of? What? Themselves. They are, in the words of a recent writer, swimming in Lake Me. <laughs> if you're swimming, and on the contrary, drowning in Lake Me, right? If you're swimming in Lake Me, how can you be thinking about other people? It's interesting, Rav Shimon Shkop, um, in the introduction to his commentary on the Talmud, it's called Shara Yosher, in the introduction, is unbelievable. It's just wonderful reading, right? He talks about the apparent contradiction 
between um, uh, self-love and the love of others. Where he says, love your neighbor as yourself, appears to be contradicted by the fact that A, it's natural to love yourself. It's just natural to have a certain affinity. I mean, it's natural. And he says, and B, halakhically speaking, you're allowed, obligated to put your own life before others. It's true. Right? If God forbid, you're not obligated, you're never obligated to die to save someone else. So that means halakhically, legally, yourself comes first. And also emotionally, we, we also like ourselves. So he says, how does that, how does that, uh, uh, fit with the idea of, love your neighbor as yourself? So his answer is, it depends on what you think of when you say yourself. Who is yourself? He says, on the, cru- the crudest, lowest level human, when they say me, what do they mean? Their stomach. Or whatever nerve ending they're referring to, right? That's what they mean, me. I want, I need. They're generally referring to the nerve endings. That's what they mean. A person a little higher level, when they say I, what do they mean? The intellect as well. A little bit of a higher level, I also means my soul, my neshama. On a little bit of a higher level, when I say I, it means my, my, my spouse, my children. When I go to the lease, the car lease guy, and I say, I need an eight-seater minivan. So he looks me up and down, and he says, look, granted, Rabbi, you need to lose some weight, but I, I think eight-seater is a little exaggerated. You'd probably get by with a normal sedan. I feel like saying to him, look, idiot. Right? When I say, I need a minivan, I don't need a minivan to fit my awesome girth right, into this minivan because I cannot fit in a normal car, right? What I mean is that I, by I, I mean my wife and children. We need eight seats in the minivan. That's what I mean, right? So I has expanded to include other people. On a higher level, when I say I am deeply disturbed by the anti-Semitism of the United Nations, I'm deeply disturbed by the danger to the Jewish people posed by the Islamic world. I, when I say I, what I'm, I'm including in the I, all the Jewish people. All the Jewish people. And on a highest level, when I say I, I mean the entire world. All of reality. All of existence. Problem is, the people's I is just so limited to themselves, right, then, then they can't look past that. The, the I never identifies with anyone else. So the first component, so to be someone who is actually able to keep the Torah and the mitzvahs needs to have a certain level of understanding, of sensitivity, that I is not just me. It's expanded to include all of reality, at the very least the Jewish people. A second component of Derech Eretz, this is pointed out by the Natsiv, well worth looking at, the Natsiv in Hamek Davar, Hamek Davar, his introduction to the book of Beratius. Uh, very, very worthwhile. I, I, I want to go through it with you a little bit. The book of Beratius has another name, he points out. In Talmudic literature, the book of Beratius, actually in the, in the words of the Nevi'im, it is called Sefer HaYoshar. Sefer HaYoshar, the book of Yoshar. Yoshar, we normally translate as righteous, upright, I mean, uh, the path of the, in Mesilas Yishorin, is usually translated as path of the just. Although I don't know if that's a great translation because Yashar doesn't mean just. Just be from the word Sadiq or Mishpat, Tzedek, Mishpat. Right? Yashar usually means straight. But, but the Henek Davar, we will see in the course of his introduction, has a slightly different understanding of what the word Yashar actually means. He points out, the book of Beratius is called Sefer Yashar. Why? 
Because our patriarchs and matriarchs, Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Sarifka, Rafa, Valaya, he says, were all called Yeshorim. They were called Yeshorim. People who were Yeshorim. So here are some illustrations of what is meant by calling the Ovois and the Yemohois Yeshorim. He says, for example, at the time of the, in, in, in Parshas uh, Ha'azinu, it says the following, Hatsur Tamim Po'olo, Kichol Durochov Mishpat. It says, Hashem is completely pious and righteous. Tamim, every action he does is tamim, is complete, takes into account every aspect. It says, All his ways are just. He is faithful. There's no iniquity in his actions. And listen carefully, it says, God is righteous and yashar. Now the context here is, when it says he's Yashar, the next posuk after it says, it's, it says, it says, He says, really, the corruption is not found in God. The corruption is found in his children, who are a generation who are twisted. Now, Chazal tell us that those verses are referring to the destruction of the second temple. Churban Bayashani, destruction of the second temple. So he says the following. This verse is justifying why did God destroy the second temple. It says, Hashem is tamim, complete. The children, us, we are corrupt. And he says, Sadik the Yasharhu, God is Yashar, that means he cannot, he can't bear someone who's not Yashar. He cannot bear someone who's not, well, I'm not defining Yashar yet, because because that's what the Hanak Dabra is doing. He's trying to prove what that means. So he says, what is Yashar? So, did that just cut out? Okay. Uh, okay. What is Yashar? It says the following. Uh, this is plugged in. I don't know what happened. Okay. All right. I, I think we can survive without it. You can hear me, I'm sure. Okay, excellent. Okay, fine. So, don't worry about it. We'll, it'll probably just explode if we do something. <laughs> All right, so. Okay. So, he says this. Because at the time of the second temple, and listen carefully, I'm going to read his words. He says, The people were righteous and pious and worked at studying Torah. Ach, lo hayu yesharim bahalichos oilamim. They were not straight in the way they walked in the world. What does that mean? Halichos Soilamim is another way of saying Derech Eretz. They weren't straight. Al-Kain, therefore, he says, Mipnei sinas chinam shebelibam zezeh, because of their hatred for each other, chashtu, they suspected, esmishen noheg shaloid datam, anyone who was not acting exactly like them, they immediately said, he's obviously tziduki v'apikoros, he's obviously a Sadducee, or an Apikoros, a heretic. Why? Because he's not doing exactly like me. And through this, they came to Shvichus Domim, to murder, by exaggeration, until every evil in the world, until the temple was destroyed. And that is what Hashem is saying. Hashem is saying, I'm a Yashar, I can't bear seeing this. What's he saying here? He's saying that the people at the time by Shani, they didn't like people. They didn't have a pleasant disposition towards humanity. So therefore, 
Here is a person who is very pious, very frum, only eats things with overlapping triple hechsherim. Right? Doesn't even carry in the house. Right? And here is a person, however, who sees someone else who is not precisely like them, who is doing something that they disagree with, and he says, obviously, this person is a heretic. He's an apikoiris. And if he's an apikoiris, it's okay to kill him. I mean, that's, that's after many steps. But that's what it says. It says, they came, alzeh l'shvichus damim. And he says this, afalpi shemayim. Even though this hatred was for the sake of heaven, people were doing this for religion. It wasn't personal, God forbid. It wasn't personal. Like personal hatred is also bad. I mean, but this is, this is, this can be a little more dangerous. Because with personal hatred, at least you know deep down somewhere that you're wrong. When the hatred is because this person is outside the bounds of Judaism, then you think that you're righteous. So it's much, much worse. Someone, a friend of mine, Rabbi Revson, told me that he had suggested a shidduch, suggested a, a, a match for a certain person. Family was from Germany. And this other family was also of German origin. They both lived in England. He thought, this is perfect. I mean, what more could you want? They're yekkas, they live in England, whatever, whatever. Uh, one was a man, one was a female. It was perfect, right? <laughs> so, I mean, those are the basic criterion, right? The same basic ethnic group and... and one, right, okay. So, um, everything else will work itself out, I'm sure. So anyway, he's, Rabbi Revson had more criteria than that. Anyway, he suggested to them, they said, oh no, this family said, V, do not speak to that family. He said, do you know them? He says, no, but we are familiar with the family and we don't speak to them. He says, why? He says, because during the Frankfurt ghetto fire, they did not provide shelter for our family. Reverend said, the Frankfurt ghetto fire was in 1820. (laughs) Oh no, you are referring to the second fire. We are referring to the first fire in 1740. (laughs) So, Hatred can go a long way. Hatred can go a long way. But, but he says here, the case was, Afalpi, Shuhul Hashem Shamayim, this hatred was for the sake of heaven. This caused a destruction of the world. This type of hatred. And he says, the Avois, the patriarchs, were the opposite of this. They were the exact opposite of this. They were called Yeshorim. Hashem says, I am tzaddik for Yashar. That's why I destroy the second temple. I cannot tolerate these people who are not Yeshorim. Who are Hasidim, the Yeshorim, uh, sorry, Hasidim and Tzaddikim, who are pious, who are religious, but they're not Yeshorim. I can't take it. I'm destroying the temple, God says. And the Avois were called Yeshorim. Examples. Here are some examples. He says, They acted They acted with love towards Gentiles, even towards idol worshippers, despicable idolaters. Even so, they had love for them because they were humans. They only wanted their good. Because they recognize that that is the sustenance of all of creation. We see, Hashem tells Avraham Avinu, I'm going to destroy the cities of Stom and Amora. They were not good cities. What happened in Stom stayed in Stom. It was terrible. 
Right? Even though Avram Avinu no doubt hated what happened in Sodom, and he hated their king, and he hated that city. Avur Rishosam because of their evil. Mikol Makom, despite his hatred for Sodom, his hatred for the king, and his hatred for everything they stood for, Chafetz Bekiyumam, he wanted them to live. He desired that they should live. And he prayed to God, he argued with Hashem, that the city of Sodom should not be destroyed. He says, Ahavta, Hashem tells him, Ahavas Tzedek, you love righteousness. What is that? Vatisna Rasha, and you hated evil. He says, what that means is, Ahavta Lahatstik, as previously, you love finding good in humanity, and you hate finding evil in humanity. Rav Chaim Soloveitchik used to say, someone said, he was, he was a, in certain areas, he was what they call a kanoi, meaning zealous, very zealous. But he had a tremendous love for people, tremendous love for people. And someone asked him, one of his students asked him, he was going to become a mashkiach in a matzah bakery, a kashrut supervisor in a matzah bakery. And um, so he asked Reb Chaim, the student said, what are the chumras, what stringencies should I be careful of when I'm supervising the making of matzah? So Reb Chaim says, don't yell at the widows and the orphans who are working at the bakery. That's the Chumrah. Don't yell, because the bakeries used to be run by widows and orphans back then, right, to make their money for the, for the year, right? And he said, don't yell at the widows and orphans. That's the Chumrah. He didn't talk about blowtorching your nails every 18 minutes. <laughs> he did not mention it. What he mentioned was... Don't, that's, you should do that by the way, right? He said, don't yell at the widows and the orphans. Reminds me of something Rabbi Yisrael Salanter said. When one of his students got married, as you probably know, in most, many communities, um, uh, in Lithuania for sure, Ashkenazim, many of them only, uh, men only wear a large talus when they get married. Only wear a large talus when they get married. Sfardim and Yekas, uh, even when they're bar mitzvah, etc. Right, different customs. But in that community, they only wore when they got married. So the student, before uh, he got married, he came to Rabbi Yisrael Salanter and he said, what should I be careful of with my talus? What, what, what chumras, what hidurim, what special, special stringencies can I keep regarding this mitzvah that I'm doing now for the first time once I get married? So Rabbi Yisrael Salanter thinks about it a little bit and he says... When you swing the talus around to put it on, make sure you don't flick people in the eyes with the tzitzis. Right? That's why so many Jews have glasses. It's a protective device. Right? Because what you do is you swing around the talus, right? And the tzitzis are going all over the place. You see people all around. Oh, it's like a kung fu movie. You know? It's like, oh, it's, oh. You know, that type of thing. You know, you hear the slack, like the crack of a whip. But... He said to be aware of other, to love other people. So that's what we say, that's what the Hemek Dover is saying regarding Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu prayed for the city of Sodom. He didn't want to see the bad. Ruchayim Soloveitchik, another point he made, he said there are two types of kanoim, two types of people who fight against evil. He says one is like, please do not take offense, one is like a housewife and one is like a cat. What is the difference? He says both the housewife and the cat hate and despise Mice. Right? And they both attempt to kill them. Right? They would like to kill them. He says the difference is, however, major. The woman would prefer that there not be a mouse around at all. She doesn't want a mouse to be there so that she can kill it. She preferred not to have any mouse there. The cat would certainly not prefer to have... The cat wants the mouse so it can play with it and kill it. 
He says, so there are some Kanoim who wouldn't know what to do if there were no evil people around. If there were no people doing Averis around, they wouldn't have a life. <laughs> They're like a cat. They're like the cat. The cat's got to have the mouse around so I can play with it and kill it. The housewife, Rebchaim says, I am like the woman who prefer not to have a mouse. I'm quite happy not to find Rishus. I'm quite happy not to find evil. I'd prefer that it didn't exist rather than, oh, great, there's some evil. Let's stomp him in the face, etc. So that's the approximate words of Rebchaim. It, it, it loses in the translation, I'm sorry. Anyway, but he says, that is why Avram Avinu is called Av Hamon Goim. He's the father of many nations because like a father, he loves his children. Who are his children? Everyone. Humanity. Humanity. He says we find Yitzchak. Yitzchak was thrown out of his home by the Plistim, the Philistines. Avimelech, king of the Philistines, throws him out of his home. He confiscates his property. He fills in the wells that he dug. And then Avimelech sees that economically it's not going too well. So he, he begs, he comes to Yitzchak and he says, oh look, I'm sorry mate. You know, I know <laughs> I filled in your wells, I confiscated your property, I threw you out of your home, but look, I'm sorry. Now, most people would say, I'm going to sue you for every cent you've got. Except Yitzchak, as the, uh, the, the uh, Hamak Dabba says, Bima'at divrei pius ma'avimelech umareyav nit payes, ba'ofen hayoter mimashibikshu memeno kimvurum koma. Yitzchak immediately forgave him and he went even further than what Avimelech asked in the first place. He was forgiving just instantly like that. Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu, who after everything, he was angry with Lavan for everything Lavan had did. Lavan tried to destroy him, etc., etc. But however, when Lavan comes to him and wants to make the treaty at the very end, Yaakov is accepting of the treaty. He's okay with it. He is willing to make friends with Lavan. So, sorry? Lavan. Yaakov and Lavan. Yes. Sorry, it's cool. Right. Or Bilam. So, so what we find is that the that the Ovois, the book of Bereish is called Sefer Yoshra because the Ovois were Yeshorim. And by Yeshorim, what that means is they had a positive disposition towards people. They love people. And if you love people, if you don't like people, so in the time of the Bayashani, if you don't like people and you see a flaw in that person, so what's your immediate reaction? He's Napikoros. He's going to go down. Right? If you love people, you're like Avram Avinu, whereby what are you saying? He's not, maybe there's some, maybe there's something I can do to help him. Totally different attitude. A totally different attitude. Both the same Shemaim. Both for the sake of heaven, but one's for the sake of heaven ends up in destruction and negativity because there's no Derech Eretz there. And the other one ends up with love and with Tikkun Olam, with the perfection of the world. Why? Because there's Derech Eretz. So the Derech Eretz, Kadmul Torah in that way as well. It's interesting also, the, uh, the Rambam in Purusha Mishnayas, the Rambam talks about the uh, the Maseches Ovis, Pirke Ovis. Pirke Ovis, the, what, what a lot of people are learning at this point, right? We are learning Pirke Ovis. It is customary to learn Pirke Ovis between Pesach and Shavuos. Why? Because Pesach and Shavuos is the Pesach, as Rehurst says, is where we were formed as a nation. That was our physical creation as a nation. Shavuot, we received the Torah, is our spiritual creation as a nation. So the national creation of the Jews is Pesach. And the spiritual creation of the Jews 
is Shavuot. What's the preparation to get from Pesach Shavuot? So a lot of the commentaries discuss why do we learn Pirkei Avot during this period of seven weeks from Pesach to Shavuot? One answer is very simple. Derech Eretz, Kadmal Torah. How could you receive the Torah at Sinai if you don't understand the basics of heavy mekabalist kol adam besever panim yafos to receive everyone and say hello and smile? Smiling is so easy. It's really easy. It's very, it's very, very. It's not hard. You can even do a genuine Duchesne smile just like like that. It's, like, it's, not, it's not hard, right? It doesn't cost you anything, and it's amazing what it does to people. It's amazing the effect it has on people. Right? I mean, I was in, we were, I was in Slovakia, it was yesterday, no, yesterday I was in Czech Republic, right? Czech Republic, yes, I mean, there's a lot of dour people in Eastern Europe, you know what I mean? They're not, like, happy, right? Which doesn't bother me that much, European, okay, whatever, anyway. But, I mean, so, but I'm saying, you, you smile at someone, and standing behind the counter, the security person, etc., and it t- changes their whole attitude. It's an amazing thing. I mean, that, and granted, that's a selfish reason. Right? But aside from that, it does spread a bit of good, you know, I mean, there's a story, Yakov Kamenetsky's biography, you know, his Leviah, his, his, um, his uh, um, funeral was in Monsi. And at the, there's, a, there's actually a, um, uh, there's a convent in Monsi. A very, very lonely convent, obviously, right? Uh, but there's a convent in Monsi. And there are a number of nuns from the convent who, were at the, who came to the Leviah. And someone asked them, like, you know, you know whose, whose funeral this is? They said, yes, it's a very famous rabbi. And, uh, so someone asked, why, why are you here? Did you know him? They said, no, but he was the only person that actually used to smile at us and greet us in the street. Very interesting. It's Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, right? Uh, so, um, heavy mekabalos kol adam besefer panim yafois. It says kol adam, anyone. Right? So that's part of what we call derech eretz. So, the reason we learn in Pirkei during this time is exactly that. We're preparing for receiving the Torah. How do we prepare for receiving the Torah? We don't prepare by, intel- by, by doing logical exercise in solving, solving uh, you know, irrational number matrices and stuff like that, doing calculus, right? getting ourselves intellectually, like you know, training for jeopardy, right? doing mind, mind gym and stuff like that, you know, like push-ups with your frontal lobes. We're not doing that. What we're actually doing during this period is actually focusing on becoming more decent people. That's what Pirkei is about, right? How to become a decent human being. Mile de Avois is, 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 is really ultimately, much of it is Midois, Derech Eretz, personality traits. And indeed, the fact that you see many men who are very hirsute during this time, the reason that, is, uh, that we don't shave during this time is because of the death of the students of Rabbi Akiva. And the reason given, the Gemara says, is Shlonagu Kovod Zeh Bezeh, they did not treat each other with sufficient respect. There was not sufficient respect. In other words, it wasn't, it wasn't for, it was for respect, the lack of respect for each other. It's an incredible thing. Because what they, and specifically the Maharal says during those first 32 days of the Omer, which is the numerical value of Kavod 32, right? But during those first 32 days, that's when it's, that's when they had to die. Because this is the time that you're preparing to receive the Torah. How do we prepare to receive the Torah? They inculcate in ourselves the idea of respect for each person. Because each person is totally unique in their perspective on the world and on Torah. Each person is irreplaceable. And therefore, there has to be a level of respect for every person. And here are the people who are going to be transmitting the Torah to future generations. 
And they do not show sufficient respect to each other at a time when we're supposed to be working on the Derech Eretz Kadma Torah, the Derech Eretz preceding the Torah, or the Kadma Derech Eretz Torah, the Derech Eretz preceding the Torah as the basis for the Torah, the Midois, as the basis for the Mitzvahs, etc. And they fail in that crucial area. So to speak, Hashem is removing them from the chain of transmission. They cannot be the Beit Midrash, they cannot be the house of study which is going to be transmitting Torah for all the generations. There's going to be missing a very, very crucial piece, very crucial piece of Torah, which is this idea of Derech Eretz. So I think there are a few reasons for this, and we're going to be finishing with this, right? There are a few reasons. I think number one is, uh, I mean, aside from the influence of society in general, uh, which, uh, as you know, in the United States is very, very... Uh, the idea of respect for other people is almost almost non-existent. Uh, the idea of respect for people's... For the idea of, of viewing yourself as part of a group is unusual, un- non-existent. Right? But aside from it, I think one of the main problems is the ego, is only thinking about myself and not thinking of myself as part of others. How else could a person actually smoke when it's disturbing someone else and not care? And throw the cigarette butt down and throw garbage down. I remember I had people drive up in my house in Passaic Car stops at the front of the house, right? And they open the window and they say, oh, they obviously want directions. It was from family. I walk over to the car and as I'm walking over to the car, person in the back door opens the door and throws out some garbage. On the road, in front of my house. Like, as I'm walking out to give them directions. I'm saying, shall I throw the garbage back through the window? Shall I say... I, I handed it back to them. I said, take the garbage and, right, I'll give you directions. But, like, that is, like, how could you do that? How could you do that? How could you... I mean, the very fact that someone drops garbage, especially when I see it in Israel, that really disturbs me. Aside from the, the Ben Odom Lechavero aspect, the, 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 the lack of, of respect and consideration for other people, it's also Eretz HaKodesh, it's holy land. I mean, just to, I mean, it's unbelievable. But people do that. They just don't care about other people. And it's a, it's, a, it's a huge, huge problem. I think one of the best preparations we could have for receiving the Torah on Har Sinai uh, in, a, in a few, well, probably less than two weeks, less than two weeks, I think, is, is really to work on these, on this area of Derech Eretz. It is, as we saw, the lack of it was one of the reasons for the destruction of the Second Temple. Uh, the existence of the Book of Beratius as part of the Torah is, according to some sources, primarily due to its teaching us and instructing us in the idea of Yashrus, the idea of Derech Eretz, the idea of a love for people, love for humanity, and thinking about other people. And it's not too hard to say things like, please, thank you, sorry, and uh, even to mean it, right? But even if you don't mean it, it's still worth it. Right uh, to smile, to let people merge, to you know, do stuff like that, uh, I think can make a big impact on the world, can make a big, big impact on ourselves and on the uh, and and I think uh, when we actually are able to do that and we do receive the Torah, then hopefully we can reverse the destruction of the temple. If, as Rav Cook famous statement that the destruction of the temple was because of sinas chinam was because of undeserved hatred, he says, then the building of it is through Ahavas Chinam. Even if the person doesn't deserve our love, I mean, who does? I mean, it's me we're talking about, so who deserves my love, right? So obviously, even if it's so, right, Ahavas Chinam, the idea that a pleasant disposition, there's some sure good, good in each person, and to strive for that and to try to recognize that, then not only will we receive Torah and Hasinai, but we'll see once again the uh, Torah uh, read from the, uh, at the base of Migdash, from Herav Yameinu Amen. Could I ask something? Could I ask something? Yeah. I'll turn this on first. What about 